Shalom, and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording from our 2023 Elul Learning Series, Entering 5784, Sustaining Our Learning in Elul, with Rabbi David Kasher. When I um, was talking to Rabbi Schatz about, uh, about um, doing a, a class an Elul class, um, we talked about the themes and we talked about when I might do it. And then it, I realized it turned out, oh, I'm going to be doing it on on September 11th, <laughs> on 9-11. Um, so that felt significant to me, that that date still feels significant to me and, and most of us, I think. So, um, so it's an opportunity, first of all, to dedicate our learning to those who um, we lost uh, on on 9-11 now over 20 years ago. Um, and I don't know about you, but I'm like one step removed. My stepsister's father, biological father was in the building. So that's just one step. I didn't I didn't know anyone directly, but maybe some of you did or maybe it's one or two steps. But we all we all were impacted by this. So um, so let's just let's just start there just to, as a kind of um, ceremonial thing. I thought we'd just take um, just 30 seconds of silence just to honor um, those who um, who we lost um, that day. Um, there were thousands, though it felt like somehow it felt like it felt like m- even even more. I mean, that was devastating enough, but it was uh, it affected us all. So let's just take 30 seconds of silence as we do sometimes, especially in is- modern Israel. That's like a, a way of marking um moments of of sorrow commemorations so we'll start there and just like with an eye towards dedicating our learning to the our tradition is the elevate like our learning elevates the souls of those who have departed so we'll just just with that with that in mind we'll just take 30 seconds of silence All right. So it's like, you know, 30 seconds is nothing. And yet it's so it's actually meaningful to for me. Anyway, we so rarely come together and just just sit in silence. So um, in memory of those we lost. Um, And I want to start not just dedicate our learning um, to those who um, were killed in the attack uh, uh, on uh, 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 at the World Trade Center on 9-11, but also use that to think about um, about something that we now have experienced again in a different way in recent years, which is this this sense that there are certain events that um, change everything. There are certain events that change our that the world that the world just feels different afterwards. And I and I feel like nine eleven in this country is one of those um, one of those moments that we we, sp- we speak of now as if there's a before and an after and um and you know one way of thinking about that is is do you remember where you were on 911 i i and by the way not everybody does you know now i hang out with like you know 20 somethings and they don't remember where they were or I sometimes you know meet people who weren't weren't born yet so you know the our relationship to time is relevant here um but let's just start ourselves kind of getting into this space of thinking about events that that transform our relationship to our to our social reality. And um, why don't we just start in the chat since we have that feature here and just start putting into the chat. Where were you when you heard um, uh, what was happening on 9-11? Where were you when the when when the when the Twin Towers were struck? Um, if you remember that, put it in the chat and we'll just sort of start to. Uh, we'll we'll, st- we'll have a, a a discussion eventually, but just as we're kind of warming up here, maybe you want to just pop into the chat. I I was in Israel, I was in Israel, um, and that was a strange thing. I was in Israel studying y- in yeshiva, and I felt very, I felt sort of rocketed by the by the news, but also very far 
from it. And that was a very strange, strange feeling. And I, you know, it was strange, I think, for some of us who were in California, um, when we had friends in New York and their experience was very different. And then I was even out of the out of the country. Um, so I remember that very, very well. Um, and I'm seeing answers come in at my office in St. Louis, at home about to go to work in my pediatric office. Um, Rabbi Schatz was a kid, okay? So younger than me and like, you know, remembers it, but in a different way. Um, uh, I was home, uh, rushed to get my child from a Jewish preschool in the biggest, the biggest preschool in the DC area with many Israeli embassy parents. Um, and um, Leon was exercising with his wife, seeing patients in a clinic, in a classroom morning meeting. Just like as you hear this, you can just, you can imagine one moment that sort of, it's like, like frozen in time and everybody, everybody's memory tethers them to this, to this one moment. I'll read a few more. At home with our very young children, getting them ready for school. I was in bed watching CNN. I was on a bus going uptown to my office at the Whitney Museum in New York City. Jen was in New York. And in each stop, we got little bits of news from people as they got on the bus. Um, I was at home getting ready to leave for a federal court appearance and then turned on the TV and watched a plane crash into the second tower. I was a freshman in college at Long I- in Long Island and had an early morning class with a senator who got a text and he quickly dismissed us and we, um, and we went downstairs unaware what was about to unfold. And that was the first text, Samantha says, that she'd ever seen. Oh, Samantha's here. Hi, Samantha. Nice to, nice to be learning with you. Um, okay, I'll read this one more. It was almost 7 a.m. on the West Coast and I was in bed. My husband was shaving and listening to the news. He said that we had to watch. I was wide awake for the second tower. So it's like you can, you can just feel as, as we so easily recall exactly where we were, how this moment becomes kind of etched in our, in our memory. And, you know, and there are, there are other, you know, my father used to speak of JFK getting shot this way, you know, and like, I didn't experience that, but there's like certain moments like this, that it's just like, you know, where you were and you know where you were because everything afterwards keep referring back to that, that moment of transition, that before and after. Okay. So that's a, that's just us warming up. And and now I want to take it one step further. Still, we'll still do this in, in the, um, in the chat. Um, um, just because we have a lot to process tonight and soon we'll open it up for 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 comments and conversation. But just using 9-11 as an entry point, one other question I want to ask about it is, um, what what do you think has, it feels, I, I keep saying, oh, it's one of those events that changes everything, but what has changed since 9-11? Like, what do you think is different about the world since, um, what is the after 9-11 world that is different than than what came before? Um, let's keep it in the chat for now. Um, what are some things that, that feel different? And I'll, I'll start us off again. I feel like security is different. Security at airports is just like radically different than, than what it was beforehand. Um, that's one way in which nothing has, has felt the same since. What are some other, what are some other ways that the world feels different post 9-11? Anyone have thoughts they want to drop in there? Sean and, and Tom say, in the U.S., we no longer feel safely apart from the troubles of the world. And that's right. There was like some, some way in which we're geographically isolated and suddenly we weren't. Um, uh, the, the golden Medina that my parents fled to from the Shoah was no longer safe. Right? Like this was a different kind of safe uh, haven than. And like, this is really like far away from it all. Um, Government control over individuals and loss of liberty. That was a huge thing. That was a huge thing. The, the, a way that the government was able to sort of seize the moment and and command executive power and maybe overreach it in some ways. And we're still dealing dealing with the aftermath of that. That's, yeah, right. Um, okay. Um, okay. What else? Um, ironically, Samantha says that was the last time I felt a sense of togetherness in this country. It's like interesting. Like there was this moment right after 9-11 where I, I felt like there was this real sense of togetherness and collectivity. And and yet there has been since then a kind of political political fracturedness, a sense of fear that drives our politics that is different than than it used to be. And I and and by the way, 
my father would have said the same thing about after JFK was killed. Like this is like a, a certain loss of innocence, a certain sense that this society isn't working as well. This world society isn't working as well. Okay. All right. Like we could do this with nine 11. Um, uh, and, and we can also, and sort of, this is, this is where I want, I want to, I want to head into thinking about um, more recent events because we now have this, nine eleven was kind of the biggest thing that had happened in my country, in my world, until these last years with COVID. And like, and COVID and the pandemic has been um, a, a similar, not a similar event at all, but a similar, similarly transformative event. And, you know, it's different in all kinds of ways. There wasn't a moment, right? It's not like when the planes hit the building, but I do remember, and, and, and I, and I will, I'm, I won't ask for this in the chat, but I'll, I'll call on you to remember what were some of those first moments, you know, that that trip to the grocery store where you're just like throwing things in the cart. Do you remember that? Um, or whatever it was for you that just started started to realize, whoa, I'm going to stay at home tomorrow or everything's different or they've called off this major event that I thought was happening. You know, when we really didn't know what was happening and then suddenly everything's starting to change. Um, okay. So here's where I want to enter into the real, the real, the real um, uh, conversation. I say real, meaning the the one that's live, the one that we're really still having, um, which is a conversation um, uh, uh, that is, uh, you know, we couldn't process in the midst of it. We were just surviving, but I think we're starting to have this conversation once again about how the world has changed and. Um, and I want to think tonight about how our world has changed um, post-pandemic. It's, it's weird to say post-pandemic. I just had a COVID sweep run through my family a couple of weeks ago. So it's like, it's still, it's in the world now, but we are post something. We're post something, um, some strange period that we were in that, you know, we have exited. So let's, let's now start to open it up. And I'd love to just like call on folks and hear from you what ways in which you you feel like our post-COVID world, post-COVID is the wrong term, but post-lockdown pandemic world is different. What's different now? What feels different now? Little things, big things, our relationship to masks or television or wh whatever it is. I'd love to just uh, just hear from you all a little bit now that we're beginning to reflect and look back what how do, how does the world feel feel different now so with that i want to open up the conversation a, a little bit and and think about that before we dive into some torah which i think will help us think about it uh further so let's start with uh with rachel rachel green and if we can't see you we can't see you but if we can see you that's better okay ah there you are i Hi, can rachel. do this well while i'm speaking um, i think the distrust of anyone and anything labeled an expert has really been impactful in a way that it wasn't before the pandemic. Before the pandemic, a person had some authority being a professor of this or that, or being a teacher of this or that. And now I feel like the notion of having expertise, particularly in public health, but it's, it's become fodder for ridicule, not some role that's respected in society. Great. That is, thank you, Rachel. That is a, a such a keen observation. That is a profound sea change. And I, I know what you're talking about. You know, our relationship to, as a society, to, you put it so well, because I might have said to, you know, medical experts or science, or do we trust, but to expertise in general, the idea that it's, there are people who have studied enough and they are the authorities and they know, and we'll just listen to them because that who else will we trust that that idea has some there was there was enough debate and confusion and political charge around the debate 
that we sort of lost a sense of. And I I would even, I felt myself during the pandemic squarely on one side of a debate. And now everything's changed so much that you know I even feel like, wait, what is the narrative? And, you know, like, is it, like I read news stories that maybe COVID was invented in a lab somewhere. And am I supposed to trust that news story or what is the, wh- who's the expert? Where's the, where do I get my new, like, I feel confused myself. So there's a kind of a, a cultural br- like br- breakdown and, and a certain loss of, of reliability of, of, of a sense of, of authority and expertise that we used to have. That's a, that's, that's a, that's a great example. Let's hear a couple more. Michael. Well, I was going to talk about how Jewish learning has flowered with Zoom, but I will take off on Rachel's comments because um, I was just on a call earlier for our Maimonides uh, Society here in San Antonio, and we have a uh, we're having uh, Peter Hotez speak in February. And he is a doctor at Baylor who uh, is going to, his book is coming out on uh, the the deadly rise of anti-science. And he spoke at the Holocaust Museum Houston uh, annual event this year about the, uh, the interrelationship between uh the issue of anti-science and the anti-vax movement and uh anti-semitism and uh and he has to travel around he's jewish his family and he have been the subject of virulent anti-semitism and he has to travel with special guards and security and uh it's a shame but this is uh part of the world we're living in now and i agree 100 percent with rachel i saw this in my pediatric practice um before it took a lot of root a lot of uh, anti uh, it began subtly and just in my in my final years of practice it just exploded uh, uh and this distrust of uh especially in the public health arena. Mm, yeah. Okay. So Michael building on this on this concern, this idea that we've lost a sense of of public trust, of trust in in experts. Um and and um tethering that to a, a rise a spike in anti-semitism and you can think of of all kinds of ways that instead of, you know, a team of experts, there's now just teams teams and you're on your side or the other side and there are enemies and there's there's your people and then there's the bad people who are like doing something that you don't want happening to society and th- it seems like like the breakdown in in public trust has 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 moved in tandem with a kind of in increasing not that it wasn't there before but now it's easier to just pick your team and scapegoat another team and hatred is also on the rise and maybe that is also that we can track with our with our with our recent COVID history, um, but I want to return to the I I do the, the Michael actually gave me the 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 entry that I really want and I want to I'm most of all I'll be kind of meta tonight and reflect on the first thing that Michael said which is the, exactly what we're doing tonight this this Zoom learning this Zoom world that we're in this online world that we are in. Um, that has become so familiar to me as a teacher and to all of us in different ways. This becomes a new, um, a new form of community. And um, you know, we wouldn't I, like. I'm here in LA. Many of you are here in LA. Like, we wouldn't do this before the pandemic. We would have gotten together in some shul basement, and we would have done this. And now it's great because. You know, there are probably some people on this call who are not in L.A. And we we are one of the things we gained in the pandemic. And I am not saying this as a critique. I'm part of this world now is that we're able to find each other. And if it was one of the great blessings of the pandemic, but uh, it's 
it's a tricky blessing. And I think we're in now in a position where we're so, I'm so used to teaching to a bunch of blank boxes. I don't know who's on the other end. And there's something unsettling about that, even though here I am, this is what I do. This is what you do. This is what we all do now. And so I do want to use this space um, to reflect on that a little bit and to process what it means to be living in this, this like new, newly textured online reality. Okay, so I want to head there soon, but I want to take um, the last two hands that are up. Um, one from um, Ty Bell. And again, love to see you if we can. If not, that's fine. Um, actually, I'm still home in the pandemic and I'm on bed rest again. So All right. this is the best I can do, <laughs> which is my Rosh Hashanah uh, Simonim. Anyway, when you first asked it, I had a very personal reaction but then I thought it might be part of a bigger reaction, and it's part of the package deal. I'm a lifelong reader, and I had never been interested in reading electronic books. And now, and I read more than one book a day, now I have 10 public library overdrive systems. Even if I got better tomorrow, I would don't think I'd really go back to physical books because I got used to searching. I don't have full use of either hand. It's so much easier to turn the pages. So the package deal is, hey, I can't order Judaica on interlibrary loan. I should say I'm in Maryland. So the biggest library that gets Judaica is in Baltimore. I'm near Washington, D.C. But it's a package. And the reason why, and Mike started going there, who's also not in L.A., um, but I think that part of the package, particularly for conservative movement, is that, you know, how clergy used to joke about after going leaving Zoom, it was going to be hard to give up that mute key. But now the upside of the package, I don't mean just remote, but remote, elderly, not well, traffic, kids sick, whatever, that hybrid, I think, has really changed not just for learning, but for all of Jewish life, the landscape. Good, good. Thank you so much for adding that. Right, This is a bigger conversation than just whether we have classes on Zoom. It's like our whole, as you're putting it, our whole Jewish lives, some question about how much of our Jewish lives can be teleported through a, through a screen. And more than our whole Jewish lives, the library, I, my yoga classes, I take like most of my yoga classes now online. It used to be the thing was to be in a studio. You had to be there with the teacher. And it's like, yeah, that's better. But it's so much more convenient for me not to drive across town. So everything, every all are, are all the features of our lives that are broadcastable have, have, have shifted dramatically. And I want to begin to ask the question, and soon we'll do so um, using some of the, some of the, the, the wisdom that the rabbis have on this subject. I want to begin to ask the question, Okay, things have changed. Everything's changed. Certain things change our reality. Now, do we do we do we do we want to go back to the way things were, or are we okay with the changes that we've now inherited? Um, okay, let's just take one more comment. Someone um, uh, had a, a Samantha had a hand up. Hi. Um, Samantha, and it's, uh, speaking of like the, the the advantages, Samantha's like someone I've only spoken to on the phone who lives in Florida, but now we're like learning together. So it's like a this is a good feature of so it's like there's good to come from all from all of this change. But yeah, please. Exactly. And, that, and you know, it's it's really opened up, I think, everybody's world. Um, and, I, and I just I think that for me was, I think, actually an advancement in Judaism. I think there are a lot of people that I've even seen in all different communities of Judaism that were even fearful of technology and that you see other sectors and other, you know, that perhaps started to embrace technology and a more modernized view of even Judaism because of the pandemic. So I thought that that's one thing that I started noticing in different communities um, emerging is, is this overall shift in what does it mean to be Jewish? What does it mean to be a community? And how can we sustain being a Jewish community? So I think overall, we we almost have a different narrative of how that could look um, in all in all different aspects of Judaism. So th that's something that I that I've noted because there was definitely you know at first it'd be like Orthodox would never consider blah blah blah, and then all of a sudden you know you could do uh, you know Eicha on Zoom and you could do this. So you know people that 
were originally very hesitant towards embracing maybe new ways of thinking and engaging. Um, my my hope would be that that's almost maybe going to be a catalyst for a more modern approach to how we could connect um, to Judaism. Good. Uh, that's so helpfully put, and especially the emphasis on technology and, you know, our, you framed it in such an interesting way that maybe actually before major events like these, when we're forced to rely on technologies, we're afraid of them. They're unfamiliar to us. We don't want to log in, but also we're just afraid of the world changing. We, we don't want to lose the, the, not just that human connection that we, you know, it can be very kind of, you know, maudlin about how, you know, important it is to, but, but not, we're afraid to lose a sense of the way things are. And just like, this is the way things are. But the truth is the world's always changing. And sometimes we need to be pushed through into the next. So there's another way of looking at these sorts of changes, you know, which is that not that they, that we lose things, but actually that we gain a, 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 a courage, a comfort, a willingness to move into the, into the future. Okay, so this is great. So um, I want to keep all of these themes in mind, and especially the big questions about um, about what, where we are at as a community and how we are relying on this these new structures that we've developed after the pandemic. And look, Rosh Hashanah, I'm, uh, this is more talking than I usually do before we study text together, but this is the right time of the year for processing, not just studying, but processing. We are... We are heading into the new year, and it is a good time to think about where we are at as individuals, but also as a community. And we take a cheshbon hanefesh, an accounting of ourselves as individuals, but we also take a cheshbon kihila, an accounting of where we're at as a community. And this is a good moment to do that for all kinds of reasons. Um, and to that, I'll add before I, um, I, I share some text with you all that rabbinic literature by which I, I mean the the product of the um, of the of the rabbis of the first and second century and their students that turns into the Talmud and the Midrash. Rabbinic literature is an is is excellent for thinking about precisely these issues, these these questions of what we do when everything changes, because rabbinic literature. It, 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 in it, it's not an exaggeration to say is in itself a, a a response to a massive structural change in response to a a, 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 a a historical calamity, and that is the destruction of the temple. The destruction of the temple as the symbol of the conquest of 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 our sovereignty in the Holy Land by the Roman Empire and our increasing dispersal into a, a Judaism in exile, which was our reality for thousands of years after. So the rabbis knew what it meant for the world to change and what rabbinic literature is, among other things, is an attempt to grapple with that change and to think about what will it mean now to live in a post-temple world, just like we're living in a post-9-11 world, just like we're living in a post-COVID world, what does it mean to live in a post-temple world? So, so, you know, all of those sorts of events we can sort of think of in, 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 um, in the same space, but I wanted to do it by looking at how the rabbis responded to some of the changes they were going through and to see what do we, what do we think of this of the moves they made to change things and whether or not they wanted to go back to the way things were, whether or not they could go back to the way things were as we are asking these, these same questions. We're going to look at a story that I think is um, cuts right to the heart of these questions. And it's a story that takes place on Rosh Hashanah of all time. So it's like all of the, all of the pieces coming together in this, in this story. I think this is like a really perfect tale for reflecting on some of these questions of what we do when everything changes. And the story is a story that takes place on Rosh Hashanah and stars, really one of the stars of rabbinic Judaism, and that is Rabbi, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is a, is a critical figure because he was there during the destruction of the temple, and not only there, but he um, managed to negotiate with the new emperor, 
a famously um he was he had some respect uh, from that emperor and he was offered well what do you okay we're going to take over the 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 city of Jerusalem but what do you want and what he said was just give me Yavne Yavne on the uh, a city for, uh, uh, that is that was that was outside of Jerusalem that was a kind of a safety um um, uh, a kind of a, 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 a refuge from the from the the conflict in Jerusalem, and he said, "Just give me Yavne, and I will start anew. Yavne and a and a group of scholars, and we will begin a new kind of Jewish life there." And that is what became rabbinic Judaism. So, Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakkai is really the figure who's asking these questions of how do we live now? How now that everything's changed? Now that we don't have a temple, and the temple. I'll just say this before we dive into the text. It's it's hard to overstate how central the temple was in ancient Jewish life. It was like it was it was the the place where where we connected to God, but it was also the place where um, the court sat nearby the temple, and um, the all of the authorities of 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 ancient Israel were located in the same space. So it was like the Vatican and the White House and the Pentagon and everything just like all in one, and then it's gone, okay? So um, this uh, piece of Talmud that we're going to look at is um, is reflecting on um, what it was like when the temple stood and what then um, changed once the temple was destroyed, which is, which is in some ways what all of rabbinic Judaism is um, grappling with. So let me... Um, let me share with you a link to this source sheet, which I'm going to share anyway, so you don't need, um, you're not going to need a, a link, but just in case it helps, um, let me share you a link. And yeah, okay. So that's the source sheet we're going to use tonight. And we're going to look at this story that begins with a law, okay? And then the law is debated, and then a story is told. And as we as we take those steps, we're also taking steps and deeper and deeper steps into layers of the Talmud because the first layer of the Talmud, the earliest layer of the Talmud is the Mishnah. And the Mishnah is usually presenting us with laws. Sometimes there's a debate even in the Mishnah. So we'll see that. And then the Talmud is a, is a kind of commentary and reflection on the laws of the Mishnah, which can include stories to illustrate the point. So we're going to see all of that tonight. So let's begin. And I'll share my screen, like I said. Um, and here we are. Okay, so... Um, the Mishnah begins with this law, and it's a law that is relevant um, as the Mishnah presents it in all times before the temple was destroyed and after the temple was destroyed. In all times, there was a question of what you do when Rosh Hashanah falls out the first day on Shabbat, as it does this year, okay? And the question is, do you blow the shofar? Should be a no-brainer. Of course, you blow the shofar. It's Rosh Hashanah. You have to blow the shofar. But as you're going to see, it's it's uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a question that 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 ends up being debated. Okay. Yom Tov Shel Rosh Hashanah Shachaliyot B'Shabbat. When the holiday of Rosh Hashanah fell on Shabbat, back in the old days, the good old days, B'Mikdash Hayutokin in the great temple, they would blow the shofar. Avalobamidina. Okay, but not in the rest of the country. Okay. Now, that's the first point. And the question is, wh- why? Wh- why would they, own, when Rosh Hashanah fell out on Shabbat, why would they blow the, the shofar in the temple, but not in the rest of the country? There's debate in the Talmud. They go back and forth. And are you so, maybe Shabbat prohibits you from, from using instruments or um, using using a shofar at all? No, that doesn't seem right because the Torah says you're supposed to blow a shofar on Rosh Hashanah and even calls Rosh Hashanah a kind of Shabbat. So in the end, what they decide is, oh, the reason that there's some anxiety about blowing the shofar on Shabbat is because you might not be able to blow the shofar well, or you might not have a good shofar around. And so what you'll do is you'll go and you'll take the shofar to another place. You'll ask an expert to help you. You'll get them to bring a shofar over to you and you will come to the prohibition of carrying on Shabbat. You're not supposed to carry. You can blow a shofar on Shabbat, but you're not supposed to carry on Shabbat. Okay. So that's like, 
That's the, the conclusion they come to. That's the reason that we're worried about blowing the shofar on Shabbat. And by the way, a bunch of other holidays like shaking the lulav on Shabbat, right? Or why we don't read the Megillah on, on Shabbat. All kinds of concerns that if we're doing other ritual things on Shabbat, then we'll need to figure out how to do them. We'll end up breaking Shabbat, okay? But the law was, therefore, on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, when it fell out on Shabbat, we didn't blow the shofar. But in the great temple, in the Beit HaMikdash, we did blow the shofar. Now, why did we blow the shofar in the great temple if we didn't do it anywhere else? Well, it's the temple. And we have to blow the shofar on Shabbat. I mean, it is actually technically a requirement to blow the shofar. So we'll blow it in the one special place where we know we've got a shofar set up and we know we've got experts who know how. That place, at least, we're going to fulfill the mitzvah of blowing the shofar on uh, Rosh Hashanah, even when Rosh Hashanah is on Shabbat. And that's kind of, that was the that was the compromise. We'll do it in the temple and we won't do it anywhere else. Okay, that's before the temple is destroyed. Now, what do we do after the temple is destroyed? And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai has a proposal. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai had all kinds of proposals. This is what he was doing in the aftermath of the temple's destruction, is coming up with new good ideas. So here's his new good idea. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai said that um, um, since the temple was destroyed, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai decreed that they would blow the shofar in any place where there was a courthouse. And really, it's not so much a courthouse, but a court, a Beit Din. Here it is in the Hebrew. Now, a Beit Din. Um, nowadays, we talk about a Beit Din. We're talking about three judges, just three rabbis, right? Rabbi Schatz and I get one other rabbi, we're a Beit Din, okay? But uh, in the days of the Mishnah, when they're talking about a Beit Din, they're talking about a, a good number of judges, 23 judges, Okay, 23 judges. That that would constitute a bait din. So Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai seems to be saying, we'll soon see a debate emerge, but he seems to be saying, now that the temple has been destroyed, we can bl- we still should be careful about blowing a shofar on Shabbat, but we can do it any place where a court sits, where we've got an established court. Now, why would that be so? What what is the what is a sitting court? have anything to do with the temple. I explained to you why we would blow it in the temple, but nowhere else. But what about a court? What do you, any any thoughts on on why a, a court, a group of 23 scholars who could, who could render decision on law, that that any place where they were, that would be reason to blow a shofar there. Well, what's the significance of a court? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, Marlis, Marlis. Marlies. Um, I don't know if this, I'm just thinking about the shofar being associated with Rosh Hashanah, which being the day of judgment, you know, associating judgment with judges. Good. That's great. That's a great connection. Never, never, never occurred to me, but that's, that's great. It's Yom Madin. It's a day of judgment. So like who, what embodies the, 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 the judgment, the divine justice that, like, we hope it gets uh, reflected on earth more than, uh, than, than God's appointed judges. Once upon a time, they sat in the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, and now any place where, you know, there are judges administering justice, that not just creates authority, but actually, like, carries out some of the themes of Rosh Hashanah. So it, it's a legitimate place for doing the work of Rosh Hashanah. I love that connection. Uh, Ty Bell. Um, I thought of two things. One is because the court might be sitting if you need a quick answer about shofar blowing right before you need it. And even if they're not sitting then, if you decide not to do something, but it, okay, this was Rosh Hashanah, but we've got until Yom, Yom Kippur, you could get an answer faster as one if it's a place with a sitting court. But the other is, and I'll do this by analogy, the way New York City is a great town for classical music. So there are more places to hear it. There at least used to be when I lived around there, more classical radio stations, not just one. If you have a place where there are more people that live who care about these things, it will elevate the general interest in paying attention to doing things the proper way. 
Okay, beautiful. So Tybell, is, is Tybell, is that the right way to refer to you? Or do no, you it's, it's the Yiddish, it's Tybell. Tybell, okay. So um, Tybell says uh, a couple of really, really helpful and important observations. One is we've been talking about experts, right? Expertise. Well, this is a, an example of expertise. The people who know Jewish law, the judges, they're around. So if we have any uncertainty about, well, are we blowing the shofar well? Well, we've got experts around. Is it okay to transport the shofar to one place? Or all these concerns about what, the ways in which we might violate Shabbat or not fulfill the, com- the commandment of Rosh Hashanah, all of those, those anxieties. Well, we've got 23 experts around. So that helps, right? So that's, that's, that's one piece of it. But of course, um, the, other, the other observation is also very powerful, which is that, you know, thinking kind of big picture about what's changed here, well, maybe what's important now in the world after the temple is not the building or the sanctuary or the holy place, not Zion, but people. We're now going to carry the tradition. Our experts are going to carry the tradition. Our scholars are going to carry the tradition. This is now going to be a religion that is that is grounded in human beings and their gatherings, their comings, their coming together. And so a courthouse is the new center of Jewish life, the place where where the law is debated, where how we the questions of how we live are being asked. The temple is, in a sense, no longer the center. It's it's increasingly irrelevant to the to our collectivity. And so the courthouse, the this 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 the assembly of our of our scholars means something different now. Maybe it really is the new the new temple in Jewish life. Okay. All right. So great. So here's some some um, reflections on why the courthouse might have been, why Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakkai might have pointed to the courthouse as a new place where we could fulfill um, the I, the commandment to blow the shofar, even if it fell out on Shabbat. But there is a debate. So it seems like Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakkai says anywhere there's a courthouse, you can do this. But there is a debate. And it turns out we're not so sure. So let's take a look at the debate. The debate is, Rabbi Elazar said, Rabbi Yochanan only meant in the city of Yavne. He didn't really mean anywhere there was a courthouse. What he meant was anywhere the great court, the Sanhedrin, had, had been moved to. And in fact, in his day, the place the Sanhedrin had moved to was Yavne. Now that's a court of 71 judges. That's the re- that's the supreme court. And maybe what he means is yes 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 everything we said before is true and we should ground the new authority in experts and in people and in gatherings and in law but not just anywhere there still will be one central place and that place will be Yavne. But the other opinion and maybe the more radical opinion is like no and maybe the more straightforward understanding of Rabbi Yochanan's opinion is no, whether in Yavna or any other place, there's a courthouse. In other words, uh, is it that we shifted the exception from the temple to one other place, but and now embodied in in the great court, or is it no? Now, now we can do it wherever we gather together. Right? There's like the real stakes to this debate, and I I wonder if anyone wants to speak them out. But the debate is is whether. Uh, whether we've just shifted this exception to one place or whether everything has changed. And now any of our gatherings create this this kind of exception to the rule that we don't blow the shofar on Shabbat. So Samantha has a has a has a comment. I might not be articulating this that well, but the thought just kind of crosses my mind. Okay, well, you know, the base of Middash has been destroyed, you know, and now it's basically the great equalizer because no longer do we have the central hub of what is the holiest of holies. You know, we're, it's, it's all part of, you know, it's part of, you know, B'nai Israel. It belongs to all of B'nai Israel right now. It's not about, you know, being holy only when you, you know, have a korban at the base of Migdash, you know, now with the onus is on you to do it wherever. So for me, I always looked at that as a period of transition for the Jewish people where now everybody's on the same madrigah. So I always looked at that as a very interesting shift in Jewish life is, is like now it almost empowered the Jewish people that I am just as holy. I am just as I am just as capable 
as you know maybe the the levy in the in the base of Migdash or who you know the the you know the Kohen gods or whatever. Uh, but I guess what bothers me about this explanation is is that you know we've lost the the you know the kingdom we've lost the priesthood so by giving it to the Sanhedrin by saying that you could do this for them it's almost like we're bestowing upon them that stature of being um royalty whereas to me that seems incongruous with where we're at in Judaism after the base of Midrash was destroyed okay all right this is great Samantha's um, given us a, a really nice framework for thinking about this dilemma, because it's a dilemma here. Everything has changed. The world has changed. No question. Everybody knows that the world has changed. There's simply no more temple. So now the question, though, is, do, how, how, is this an opening to change things radically, or are we going to try to keep change as minimal as possible? That is, it's already quite radical. And we, you know, Teibel was talking about this, this idea that we move from an institution with a structure and a building and a sacred space to now just a gathering of scholars. That's a huge, that's a sea change. But do we want to try to limit the, 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 the disruption, the change by saying we will put it in one place and yes, things have changed. And yes, we acknowledge that now we, now we do things in a different way, but we're going to still preserve this idea that it is an exception and it's not just a free for all, or is it more radical than that? Are we saying that now that there's no more temple, everything has changed and actually we can build Judaism anywhere that we are. Anytime that we get together and we really analyze and judge and think and process our religion, it's it's an entirely new landscape. And it's an entirely, in that sense, an entirely new religion. And maybe any three people can get together and blow the shofar because like, Let's write new rules. Let's think about this in an entirely new way because Judaism is fundamentally different and we just have to get used to it. So there's a real stakes to that debate. Like we all we all agree that there's an, there's a change after the temple's destruction, but is it as little change as possible or is it as much change as possible? And those are those are some of the stakes here. Rabbi Schatz. Uh, this might be where you're going, so I'm sorry if I'm stealing your thunder, but I think there's also, and you and I talked a lot about this during the pandemic as professionals in the world, um, in the world of Judaism, there was also this debate around like, how much are we keeping holy in our own community and how much does it become diffuse by by having it on TV, so to speak, right? And And yes, of course, there are people who have now found out about different organizations and become part of the learning and part of the experience of those holy moments. But as we all know, as soon as something is out in the world in a big way, it's harder to bring it back. And so with the blowing of the shofar, does, does, does the, does the added caveat here of having it be in a, in a more broad space or in a more general area, make it less, um, I don't want to say holy, but like less focused in on what its use was primarily for. Good, 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 good. All right. That's exactly right. And you, you know, you have been my sort of thought partner through these last years. So like, you're right to reference conversations we've had where we've been thinking about exactly these things and worrying about exactly these things and really unsure, you know, your rabbis have been unsure just as you have been unsure. What's the right call here? I mean, during mid-pandemic, deep pandemic, I think all of us acknowledge that it was a tremendous gift to have some kind of online portal to connect to anyone. But now, is the cat out of the bag? Have we gone too far? Like, you know, I worry about these things. I love learning online. I'm like so happy to have the, but I don't like praying online. And like, but some of you do like praying online. Some of you, you know, we all have different, lines that we would draw on how far is too far and 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 rabbi Schatz raises this um this question which is which is also the the like a, the critical one of the critical questions here which is what whether you know whether you draw the line here or there once the line has been drawn can it really be pushed back are we really able to go back okay and with that I want to take some of the comments that are up, but I want to just, I want to give you the last piece of this Talmud, the story piece of this 
um, discussion in the Talmud, because this story piece deals with exactly the question the Rabbi Schatz has just raised is, are we, are we, can we, can we walk it back once we walked it forward? And I just want you to see Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai in his, in his full display of his, of his, of his radical, um, of his kind of radical game-changing authority here. And just to give you a sense of what it means to, to move something forward and then not be able to move it back. This is like, this is the, the Talmud's reflection on the Mishnah's uncertainty here. So just take a look at this. This is, this is like funny story, but also I think a deeply relevant one. Okay, so since the temple was destroyed, Rabbi Yochum and Zaki decreed, well, what, how did that happen? What, what was the story where he first made this move? Where did he decree? And this is the story. Tana Rabban and the rabbis taught, once Rosh Hashanah fell on Shabbat, after the temple had been destroyed, and people gathered together from all the cities. So they don't know what to do. We, we used to only blow shofar in the temple. But Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai said to the elders of the community, Nitka, let's blow the shofar. And that must have hit the crowd like, whoa, can you really do that? Are we really allowed to do that? Can you really pray on Zoom? I mean, what's, what's going to happen here? Is this going to change everything? So they said, shouldn't we deliberate and render an official judgment for, first? They, this is like a, 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 a long <laughs> paraphrase of what they said, which is just nadun. Let's make a judgment first. Let's consider the law. Let's rule first. Let's not just let's not do what, what is in front of us now. We have to sit and think about it. And Rabbi Yochanan said, we'll blow the shofar, and then afterwards we'll decide what the law is. Okay, let's just, for now, it's Rosh Hashanah. We don't have time for that. Let's blow the shofar. So they did. After the shofar was blown, they said, okay, nadun, now let's sit down and figure out what the law should be. And then Rabbi Yochanan says something that fits, I think, into the, the category of what we call in, 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 in legal um, uh, discourse precedent, but it's, a, it's quite, a, um, it's quite a, uh, an aggressive use of precedent here. He says, Kfar nishmak kerem yavne. the horn has already been sounded in Yavna. And we can't go back on what's already done. Okay. So that's the story. Is that Rabbi Yochanan one day proposed that they do this and everybody's understanding was, okay, we'll figure, we'll do it for this one time. And then we'll just, we'll process afterwards. Is, is it good to, to pray on Zoom? And we'll, we'll figure it out afterwards whether all of these permissions that we've given can be walked back or not. And what's happened, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaki says, what are you kidding me? Like now we're, next year we're not going to blow the shofar in Yavna? This is the new tradition. Give me a break. We've changed everything. Okay. Now I want to like, so that's the story. And I want to turn back to you to, again, ask this question that the Talmud is asking, that Rabbi Schatz is asking, that I'm asking, that I think we're all asking, which is this new reality, this new status quo, this like learning together online, sometimes praying together online, doing our yoga classes online, this whole new world that we're living in, is it like just the new reality and that's all there is to it? Or should we be, as some of those those rabbis were in Rabbi Yochanan's time, worried that no, maybe we need, we maybe we went too far. Maybe we should be walking it back. Maybe, maybe, it isn't enough that the horn has already been sounded and that's all there is to it. So um, I want to just, we'll, we'll the, just come to a close soon, but I want to hear your thoughts on this question of where we're at and whether this is good and whether it's, or, or, or whether it, it doesn't matter whether it's good or not, it's just is, or on the other side of the debate, no, 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 we've gone too far and we need to rethink. Now that we're emerging from the pandemic, let's rethink some of these new norms that we've become accustomed to. So open it up for your um, your reflection on that on that question. Uh, yeah, Tom. Um, I don't have an answer, but I have an observation, which is that it feels like in this in this story, and also in, in definitely in this Zoom discussion, there's like an inside group and an outside group. Like if there were people who were who are like regular, regularly davening together in person before the pandemic, then they might feel like, oh, we want to get back to what we had before. And if there were people who were homebound or just didn't go because it was inconvenient, but during maybe during the pandemic, they started davening or during, you know, after the temple, they heard the shofar one time, then they don't, then the new people 
are like, well, yeah, this is it. This is it. Yeah, this is. And the old people are like, let's, let's go back to the other way. So sometimes it has to do with what your experience is. And I think I'm hearing that actually those debates happening now. There are people who are homebound who are like, no, don't go back. Don't go back to just doing it in person because then you're leaving me out. That's yeah, I couldn't I, I won't restate it because you said it so well. That is definitely one of the tensions that we're grappling with here. Yeah, beautiful. Um, uh, Lillian and Steve. Hi, Rabbi Kasha, this is terrific. Really great studying, and it's wonderful to be here with all of our friends and community. Um, I was thinking about um, the rabbis, and I was wondering if some of them wanted this to happen before the temple was destroyed, if they had an inkling about this. And like I was thinking about as a physician, I've wanted telehealth for decades and we couldn't make it happen. The government wouldn't support it. They wouldn't pay for it. And people couldn't come in to see us. Now, all of a sudden there's telehealth. There is no going back. You know, there's just no going back. Um, so what it did, what COVID did was sort of put a rocket ship on change that really needed to happen. And, and there were shackles on it. So I'm wondering if the rabbis in that, in that time were already feeling the desire to be at Yavne, to be in the Golan Heights, to be all over the country and, and to be with people. Such a great question. Such an important question here. And I think that's, that's, that's a, that's one way of looking at what Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is up to is maybe he, after all, the rabbis represent the folks who loved sitting around and talking about the law and learning and processing and judge. They were the court people. They weren't the priests. And maybe even in the days of the priests, they were always already thinking, oh my gosh, this has gotten so, so antiquated. These, this, priestly system is so corrupt we really should be moving judaism forward into a new era and then suddenly the world forces it and it's like well let's seize this opportunity because we knew that we were heading this way all along and i think the way you're the way you're framing it lillian is exactly right maybe that's true for us as well and there was a suggestion about um this um earlier that, that maybe we you know we there's we have a fear of technology we have a fear of a new landscape but this is where we're headed. And so there's something um, I want to say a little bit like um, uh, conniving and um, not cynical, but certainly um, strategic about Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's move. Maybe it wasn't just like, what do we do now? The temple has been destroyed. But aha, this is the moment and we're moving forward. And I think that's that's a that's a very plausible reading here. Um, Carl, Carl Sunshine. You there, Carl? Yes, oh. I am here. Uh, on the question of can one go back to a previous circumstances, I think it depends a lot on how you've set up the experiment, the new trial. If you go into it with an acknowledgement that it is a trial or that there's some kind of unusual circumstances, uh, and then when you get done, you can say, okay, we evaluated the trial or the new circumstances have ended. We're deciding to go back. It wasn't a good thing. But if you go into it without setting it up that way and you make it seem more like, well, we're just doing this new thing now, that's the new thing, then I think it's much harder to go back. And on this point, I have to say the, the halo on one of our exalted rabbis is a little tarnished for me because it seems like he manipulated the people. He misled them, perhaps purposely, that this was an experiment, but then it wasn't. Yeah, I so appreciate that um, that reflection, Carl. And I'm—I must admit, I'm—I'm I'm with you. I—I I, I can't help but look at this interchange and sympathize with the rabbis who just—they just want to talk about it first. Like, can't we talk about it first? Let's—they're I, I, open to what you're saying, but can't we make a decision? And on the one hand, maybe there are moments where someone just has to, you know, seize the reins. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai did what he knew had to be done. And maybe we have a Judaism because of him. 
That's that's one possibility. But the other possibility is that there's this was this was a power play and it was manipulative and it was cynical. And in fact, you know, what we should do in times of crisis is sit and process and reflect. And it's hard because it's a crisis and we don't have time. But certainly afterwards, you know, now they've blown the show far. Let's talk about it. Are, is this the right decision? Have we gotten to where we 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 want to be, or we, have we just ended up somewhere because we 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 had no other choice? And that I you know, as we begin to come to a close here, I mean that's that's what I I certainly don't have any answers on on you know the future of Judaism and the future of online Judaism, but I do think that wherever we go. Like Carl, I, I want us to be reflective. I want us to be deliberate and thoughtful and and to have a conversation so that maybe that conversation leads us to to re, to to reconsider and to say, wait a minute, let's go back to the way things were in some ways. We've lost something. Or maybe that conversation leads us to conclude it is inevitable. We are heading into a new reality, but at least we can do so consciously with a sense of what's at stake, what's been lost, what's been gained, and why we are deliberately and purposefully headed into this new future and not just stuck because what are you going to do? That's just the way things are now. That, I, I think I'm agreeing with Carl and feeling like that's not the sentiment that I want driving our community into the future. It's just like, what are you going to do? That's just the way we've all gotten used to it. But no, aren't we people who process and reflect and judge and consider and study and debate? Like, isn't that the process that should lead us into the future? Okay. Um, I'll take any last comments before we close. And I see one from Rachel. Okay. There. Here I am. Um, I think what is sticking in my craw about this great discussion and analysis and my agreement with the sense that, yes, we should be reflective and deliberative in making this decision is Rabbi Yohanan ben Zakkai blew the shofar on Shabbat. And these days we don't. And there's something really like those two facts don't fit together. You are exactly right, Rachel, and I'm so glad you mentioned it because it shouldn't it shouldn't uh, it shouldn't go unmentioned in our conversation. We don't blow the shofar on Shabbat. <laughs> we don't do that nowadays, or at least mo- many Jewish communities um, are, are have gone back to the practice of not blowing the shofar on Shabbat. And there's a there's a deep irony there. Um, now there's a technical reason, which is that we don't have the kind of court that the 23 Sanhedrin kind of style court that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was talking about. So it's easy to say, well, even if he meant it nowadays, that doesn't count. That's not really the point. And I think Rachel is is putting her finger on something ve- like very, very ironic and important to, 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 to note here, which is that for all that radical movement, let's for a moment sympathize with Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who did move, move Judaism into the future. Have we then lost sight of that? Like, have we walked about now? Have we gotten more conservative? Was Rabbi Yochanan and Zakai really willing to bring us into a new era? And we, we and we cowered and we were too timid for that. So I think that's that's exactly right. And that's that's worth it's worth reflecting both on the perils of radical change, but also on the perils of like fear based conservatism. And, you know, either of either of those things can be can be uh, can be ills in our in our communal life. Um, okay, we'll just take one, maybe two last comments from Michael. Well, I just uh, I think it's sort of interesting that uh, we're having this discussion on the eve of uh, the Supreme Court in Israel hearing the arguments tomorrow. Um, I want to thank you for this rich discussion. And I also want to thank uh, Rabbi Schatz for, and Temple Beth Am for at least not going back yet and having this hybrid uh, uh, system and uh, and making it possible for people like me and, and others to uh, hear this great teaching and so appreciate uh, your, your, your learning tonight. 
Thank you so much, Michael. And thanks for making that connection. We could This theme that we've been considering tonight, we can think about it after 9-11. We can think about it after COVID. We can think about it after the decision that 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 is being considered in Israel right now. There are this idea that the that that things happen and the world as we know it changes, that's happening all the time. There are some events that that glare more than others, but the truth is we're always having to process and reprocess our reality because there are forces beyond us that change everything we know. And I guess um, I will just end uh, by saying sort of um, again that um, I'm really interested in us being a kind of conscious, thoughtful community. And this time of year is a time in which we are really deliberate and thoughtful and careful about our personal interpersonal, individual, religious, spiritual, ethical lives. You know, we think about ourselves and how we're doing. And can we start ourselves off, whether it's a new diet or a new whole way of being in the world? We think about ourselves that way, that sort of deep reflective way. So um, surely, as you know, eventually the high priest made um, a confession, not just for himself and his family, but for all of Israel, surely we should be that um, thoughtful and reflective and deliberate and intentional about our lives as a as a whole people as a community and that this is also a time of year to do that kind of thinking of really reflecting what do we want how do we want to move forward what are our needs right now how can we take the best of the past with us but also be adaptive to um to the needs of the future that's the constant jewish um equation and we're we're doing it every day, and we're doing it uh, in response to every great um, event that we have um, that we have encountered. And you know, I guess we're doing okay because we're still here, but there's still so much to figure out. So I wish just a year of of reflection and intentionality, and uh, and I wish you all a shana tova. Thanks to Rabbi Schatz for having me here. Thanks to all of you for being here. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.